Please turn with me to the book of James, chapter 5. I'll be preaching on verses 7 through 11. But before we read there, please remind your soul along with me that these are God's very words. Specifically, addressing you, addressing us in this holy moment. Hear them that way. Purpose in your heart to to submit yourself now to the divine claim they're making on your life and receive the comfort and encouragement that they are designed to powerfully impart to us as God's people. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Would you pause with me in prayer over sacred scripture? Father, we thank you that you speak to us. And you have done just that. And we, we acknowledge how much we need grace to overcome the obstacles in our souls that would resist your word, that would be distracted from your word, the sins in our hearts that keep us in disobedience to your word. But Lord, now we are seeking and we are knocking and we are asking that you would pierce through that you would open our ears, that the soil of our hearts would be fertile and that we would walk out of these doors truly having been shaken, having been transformed, having been edified, having been convicted, having been built up by the power of your active and living word. This is what our hope is. This is what we look to now. Speak. Speak that word that brought creation into being, that resurrected our hearts from the dead, and that continues to sanctify us and to make us like you. Lord, do this. Do what only your word can do now in these next moments together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the passage we're studying 
or maybe better put that studying us, is a summons to be patient. To persevere in the midst of persecution and problems. And to strengthen our resolve to that end, James reminds us that Christ's return as judge is coming soon. And then he highlights how past believers have endured hardships and personally experienced God's faithfulness in them and stand today as our inspiration and our examples to follow. That, that's the substance of these verses. And the way I've organized the points to capture those truths are simply by the main characters this text puts forward. And they are as follows. Number one, the patient farmer. Number two, you'll see, is the imminent Savior. So if you're taking notes, the patient farmer, the imminent Savior. And then number three, the enduring prophets. Now we'll look at each of these main characters as well as the attending exhortations and motivations that go along with them. But the initial one we begin with is the patient farmer. Did you see it there in verse 7 and 8? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also, like the farmer, be patient. Now, the main clues to the background of this letter are mentioned in the verses immediately preceding our text. James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the original church in Jerusalem, is writing to his flock because they are suffering and they are sinning. And here's the circumstances. When persecution broke out in the Jewish capital, this congregation was forced to flee. And they now find themselves as refugees living in a hostile foreign land. And it's in that setting they are struggling to survive as they are being oppressed by wealthy landowners who are robbing them of their wages. And it's in that dire trial that they're beginning to compromise and to fight with one another, which often happens when life is difficult and painful. But in chapter 5, 1 through 6, James doesn't correct his church, which was necessary throughout the majority of the letter. No, there he sought to comfort the flock by assuring them of the certain destruction and condemnation of those who have taken advantage of them, of the unrighteous rich who have hoarded and cheated and indulged only themselves in the exploitation of others. But, but those prophetic curses, that rhetoric of wrath, is left behind in verse 7. And it's replaced with gentle pastoral admonishment. Listen to his tone again. And don't forget, this is in the face of them being unjustly ripped off and uncertain where their next meal will come from. Nevertheless, James says, be patient. Be patient, brothers. 
until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. I grew up on a parcel of land that was part of my grandfather's farm. At one time, his property was over 50 acres and included a large chicken coop, a pigsty, and various other livestock, but it was primarily crops that he grew. Now, please know in this illustration, I am not going to try to convince you that I was a farmer. I I wasn't. I was a, a redneck idiot jumping dirt bikes in the woods, shooting birds with my compound bow. So I was a country boy, but listen, I was not a farmer. Now, now I was a farm hand. Grandpa often conscripted me to, to till the soil under his exacting eye, to, to shovel compost, to apply insecticides, and to pick string beans. Row after row of string beans, bushel after bushel, pickup truckload after pickup truckload of string beans. I hate string beans. <laughs> but you know, as selfish as I was back then, and I was a seriously self-consumed pagan, I, I, I still, I, I nevertheless, I worked really hard for my grandpa as I, I respected him immensely, and I, I learned far more from watching him than I realized at the time. And, and one of the things I observed in Bill Pearson was that, as this text says, he was patient when it came to farming. Now, now he was a firm man. He had an impeccable work ethic, but, but he was also affectionate. He was, he was even playful at times. His, his education only went to the third grade. He, he wore the same pair of overalls every season and took a bath Saturday night, as he'd like to say, whether I need it or not. <laughs> he, he could shoot a rabbit at top speed from 40 yards away. I remember him at age 70 climbing 30 foot into a poplar tree with a chainsaw strapped to his back so he could cut down a damaged limb and he could build or repair anything with his hands. But, but his passion was the earth. Well, old man Pearson was a farmer. And though he would tirelessly labor to prepare the soil, to select and plant the best seeds, and to protect his crop from muskrats and crows, and I could tell you stories. And, and by the way, you have never tasted a finer beefsteak, tomato, or silver queen corn in your life than what came out of his Jersey garden. But, but listen, after he put all that effort in every spring, there wasn't much else he could do but wait. And, and I don't ever remember him being anxious. He would say some, sometimes say things like, well, it's pretty near time it should rain, I expect. The translation is that it's, it, I would want it to rain soon. But listen, even that was something he knew was out of his control. Oh, he, he, he would busy himself with, with various projects in the barn, and, and we would chop and stack as many cords of wood as we had burned that winter. There, there would always be weeding and the pest control I mentioned a moment ago. But oftentimes, 
grandpa would just be found sitting in this repaired lawn chair, just smoking his Pall Mall cigarettes and waiting, patiently waiting for the harvest. And that's James' point. He's exhorting his flock to look at the farmer's attitude. See, verse 7 commands, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth? He waits. That, that's what a farmer does. That's his job description. It's waiting. He, he waits for fruit. He, he waits to reap. He waits for the rains, which he cannot induce. So, so really, he has no choice. He must Wait, he must wait for the seed to sprout, wait for it to push through the dirt, wait for the plant to mature, and wait for it to bear a crop. Listen to how Jesus describes this same reality, what is essentially the passivity, the powerlessness of a farmer. This parable is found in Mark chapter 4, verse 26. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So, a farmer. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Implication, he does nothing about it either. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Do you see? But Paul applies the the same miracle of the growth of vegetation to his own evangelistic ministry to bring about spiritual life, spiritual fruit. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, so again, he's a farmer, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So, So take all that data back to James 5, 7, and here it is again, and and listen to how many times James calls upon his hearers to be patient, to be patient in suffering, because just as unexplainable as it is how a seed that falls to the ground and dies, how that produces a magnificent plant or tree that has delicious produce on it, the the farmer knows not how, in the same way, somehow, our enduring hardships, like buried seeds, will eventually, even automatically, yield glorious fruit. And not now. Not now, but at the return of the Lord. That's when the final harvest will take place. And until then, we must wait. And wait patiently. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late range. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Is it hands? Listen, my dear friends, I I am not unaware of, of the misery and travail 
and deep disappointment that besets you as sinners in a fallen world. Parents here who have been devastated by the rebellion and and blasphemy and, and debauchery of their older children. Church splits that have have scarred our memories and ended relationships that span decades. Divorce has wounded so, so many of you in your upbringing and, and that nightmare has even been tragically realized in some of your own attempts at marriage. There is... There's a loneliness, a, a darkness that some of you experience as, as a single that can lead to despairing of life itself. O- others here live under the crushing weight of financial debt. In this room, individuals have chronic, crippling pain, diseases and, and disabilities that they rarely, if ever, experience any respite from and far more than we would ever want to know have been abused and in some way defiled sexually and and for all of that I am so I am so very sorry I wish I wish there was something I could do to alleviate all of that anguish and grief, but but I can't, and I wish I knew the right thing to say regarding all that you've suffered, but I, I, I don't have the words. But here's a truth. Here's a truth that possesses the potential to console you. And even transform your perspective. And I hope it brings grace and not further discouragement to you in your trials. And it's this. Be patient. Be patient, hurting saint. Like the farmer. Be patient because... In similar ways, there's really not that much you can do. And be patient because this life is sowing. The next life is where we will reap. And I'm going to say that again because I think that concept is a lifeline for some of you. And it has the potential to revolutionize the way you process difficulties. This life is sowing, not reaping. This life is about sowing. The next is where we will reap. reap. That, that's why you have to wait. The text says, wait until the coming of the Lord. That's when all the wrongs done against you will be vindicated and rectified. That's when justice will be carried out against those who have mistreated you. That's when redemption, when deliverance will fully 
and finally occur. And it's only then that healing and delight and peace will be consummated. That, that's, that's what we are waiting patiently for. It's for the harvest. That's what we are to establish our hearts for, verse 8 says. It is for the coming of the Lord. And that is not a present focus, but a looking to the future, to the return of our Lord. Oh, church, we must stop trying to reap heaven here. This is not where to look for glory. Our earthly existence is not where to put our hope for happiness or perfection. Your your fears and your sicknesses and your broken relationships, they will not be removed in this fallen world. And I am sorry to be the bearer of this bad news to you, but you're going to fall ill. You will. You're going to die sometime. And that usually does not feel good. Your family is not going to turn out how you want them to. I, I promise, not, not your marriage or your kids. People will unfailingly fail you. So society is going to get worse. Everything you own is going to break. Listen, you have to wait. You you have to wait patiently. You have to establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand because it is then and only then that all of these things will be made right, that all of your longings will be satisfied and that your joy will be made complete. And we'll look at that, look at Christ's return, and in particular, how it's being at hand, how that helps us to be patient and motivates us to endure more under the second point, the imminent Savior. All right, so are you following? Are you with me? The first is the patient farmer. You get it? Yes? yes. Now we're going to turn our attention to the imminent Savior. And we're going to pick up again in verse 8. Look there with me at your Bibles. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So, So follow along with me again. James has just commended his congregation to emulate the farmer in their patience, in their own distress, as the harvest is really out of their control. Only God can supernaturally bring forth fruit from the earth, and only he can redeem our hardships, which we taste here, but will only ultimately be realized when he comes back. And so we, so we wait, we anticipate, we, we yearn, and we establish our hearts. We fix them on Christ's coming again. And the encouragement in that is, it's at hand. It's imminent. It, it, it will happen soon. It's the next and final great event in salvation history. And the consolation is that, is that it means... 
our trials will not last forever. When all is ripe, when the seasons God has sovereignly ordained, when the rains and the prunings have grown his purposes, have brought forth and yielded the precious cup he is cultivating, even with our tears, and sometimes in our blood, eat then and only then will he return. And Matthew 3.12 promises it will be with his winnowing fork in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor. Oh, and listen to the promise here. And gather his wheat, his, his ripe wheat, his fully matured harvest of wheat into the barn. But the chaff... He will burn with fire. Listen, Jesus will descend shortly. As far as you know, it's going to be within the next 70 years. Because you're dead. That's soon. He's coming. And he's coming to rescue us. With an angelic trumpet blast, he will rent the sky. Christ will come and, and it's to conquer our enemies. It's to save us from persecution and sin, even that's our own, and just the absolute vileness of this evil age. And again, that's what we are to establish our hearts on. That it, that is the immovable foundation that we are to set our hope on. That is what we are to, to, to desire and to await expectantly. That our imminent Savior is almost here. And nothing gives us greater courage to endure our present pain. Oh, I, I want you to see how helpful the application of this is. The parousia, that's the Greek word for the, the second advent, for the return of Christ. That cataclysmic, consummating event, that's why we're not looking to the 2016 elections to right the moral suicide that our nation has recently committed in trying to re-engineer human gender and for utterly perverting the sacred institution of marriage between a man and a woman. Can I say that here? Yes. Listen, our, our hope is not that medical technology is going to cure cancer and, and remedy all of our maladies so our bodies never malfunction and never experience comfort. Just abandon that delusion. A, a, a rebounding economy, career advancement opportunities, and, and owning substantial financial holdings and investments, and all the pleasure and, and peace such money can buy, that is no place to put your security. It's as flimsy as the paper it's printed on. And, and just think with me about how much disappointment and damage relationships have caused both to us and by us. And these are relationships we want to work, that we've tried to improve, that we've made sacrifices for within our family and friendships and otherwise. The, the, the understanding and support and intimacy and joy we were made to experience with one another, it never happens. In so many ways, it's somehow undone or, or undermined by resentments and misunderstandings and betrayals and envy and rejection. I mean, isn't it obvious 
We will not reap perfection down here. We, we can't create paradise for ourselves on this planet. But despite all experiences to the contrary, we keep trying, don't we? We establish our hearts on what we want here and now and what we can get in this life. And when those desires are frustrated, when we get hurt again and our life just accumulates more and more sorrow, do you know how we then respond? Verse 9 we grumble. And we grumble against one another. Do you, do you see it there? That, that's how you can tell where you have established your heart. Whether you've set it on things above or on things below. It's if you grumble. It's if you grumble against one another. See, complaining reveals that you're looking to this world to complete you. That you're looking for people to produce your dream life. And haven't you found that they don't tend to cooperate? That they don't seem as passionate about your preferences and plans as you are? I, I, I genuinely don't understand why my wife does not always agree with me. I don't get why my kids don't obey me. Guys, can you help me with this? I don't, I, I don't know why people don't drive like me or vote like me. I, I, I don't know why people don't just listen to me. And when that's our focus, we grumble and criticize and mock and feel sorry for ourselves and project guilt and get angry at one another. And that's because we're trying to harvest prematurely. We're not being patient. We're not being willing to wait. No, we want to gather now. We want to experience gratification immediately. We want heaven on earth. And when we look to this world to produce a fulfillment it cannot, when our hope is on people to satisfy and delight us, which they were never created to do, it's like picking fruit that's not ripe. When we bite into it, we have to spit it out. It's, it's too hard to swallow. It's, it's bitter, isn't it? And let me push the analogy further. It makes us vomit. That's why James insists, do not grumble against one another. It's because our attention is not to be on the present and on our relationships Horizontally, no, we must be future-oriented time-wise and primarily about our vertical relationship with God. So stop thinking now and horizontally and instead direct your gaze to then and vertically. This is the secret to not complaining. It's to transfer our focus. Actually, it's to, re to repent from looking to get glory immediately and from people the now and them, and instead to look beyond tomorrow to God, to the then, to Him. And James warns us that we'll be held accountable to when and who we establish our hearts upon. Do not grumble against one another, he says, so that 
you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So the imminence of our Savior isn't just for our deliverance, which it is. Jesus is also coming to judge us. His church, and and what a sober thing that is. What a fearful day that will be. The the, the wicked wealthy will be consumed in the fire of God's holy wrath. That's back in verse 3. But even as his redeemed people, we, we will stand before him. Not for condemnation, but certainly for evaluation, for discipline, for purification, for reward according to verse 9. And, and there it's shown to be on this one thing. It's on the basis of how we treated one another. That's why James is so vehement throughout his epistle about us not showing favoritism over one another or neglecting the material needs of one another or cursing one another with our tongues or murdering one another in our conflicts. Christ is on the doorstep. He's listening in. He's, he's almost here. And when he suddenly enters his household, when he returns, what will he behold? How, how will he find us as his children relating to our brothers and sisters? What, what attitudes will he discover his sons and daughters displaying towards one another? Do you follow the, 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 the intimate, rather the imminent Savior necessitates that we examine ourselves? And it's not complicated. Just, just be honest in this moment with me. H- how much do you complain about people? How often do you grumble about your spouse, your fellow church members, your parents, your spiritual leaders, your siblings, Christians in other denominations, your believing children. Ask those closest to you to assess you in this area. Just just start a humble conversation over lunch, inviting input and observations on on your grumbling and and the gripes you voice about those around you, but especially against the body of Christ. And know There is grace to change. Every one of us should be convicted in some way by this charge to not grumble against one another. Just ask God to forgive you and to help you wait patiently for a harvest, not for this life, but for a heavenly one that the Lord Jesus will usher in himself upon his return. James then concludes with further incentive to long-suffering and perseverance in trials and forbearance with one another in showcasing the example of biblical heroes of old, which we'll wrap up briefly under point three, the enduring prophets. I know I'm going over. Are you still with me? Just a little more time, all right? So, review. We must wait patiently like the farmer, because we're not going to reap here. No, that's reserved for the second coming. We must also wait patiently in trials because Jesus is on his way to rescue us from all our adversaries, but also to call us to account, in particular for our grumbling against his body. But finally, we must wait patiently, knowing that we're not the first ones to face such challenges. Saints, Saints have gone before us 
And they've held on to the end. And we can and should imitate their endurance. This is verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. There's a hidden encouragement in these verses that I think is important to draw out. And it's the fact that the prophets, and definitely Job, were not always examples of patience. Elijah had a pity party after he defeated 400 prophets of Baal in this phenomenal showdown, calling down fire on Mount Carmel. Jonah refused to even obey God, running in the opposite direction before he would even show compassion to Israel's enemies. And when it came to their attitudes towards their own people, Moses wasn't even allowed to enter the promised land because of his anger towards them. And here's Job's conclusion of his brothers and his friends. Miserable counselors are all of you. Full of windy words. That's encouraging. Real wholesome speech. I guess Ephesians 4.29 wasn't written there. But so, Job not only thinks that way towards the church, he he gets perturbed at God himself. So so listen, this is the point. These guys are real about their protests and their anger and their, their struggles and their utter despair. And that if their situation didn't change, that they weren't going to make it. The the patriarchs and prophets were unfiltered about their agonies and their trust, and they would groan, oh Lord, how long? They would beg God to take pity, to, to intervene, to stop all of the sin, to do something about it. But here's what's so important to see in their grumbling. They always and eventually directed their pain and their complaint to God. They they, they took it to Him. They didn't go elsewhere with it. No, they looked exclusively to the Lord for answers and for Him, not people, for Him to deliver. And Job is the supreme example in that. The worst his circumstances became the tighter he held to Yahweh. He, he would not let go. He was the epitome of endurance. His faith that his Redeemer lived and one day he would see him on, on the earth, it only grew more resolute as his misery increased. That, that's how the prophets endured and what we are being enjoined to emulate. Indeed, there's an entire chapter commending their faith and the perseverance of God's people to us. And and here's how that chapter ends in Hebrews 11. This is verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Do you see where they've established their hearts in that? Verse 10 says they were looking forward to a city 
to a better country, to a home that, that nothing on this perishing earth could offer. One that's foundation and builder is God. And then verse 38 continues. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves. God's people know how to suffer. This is our heritage. Listen, verse 39. And all these, and you too, though commended through their faith, did not receive in this life what was promised. And here's why. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, And our endurance, they should not be made perfect. In other words, they had to wait. The harvest was not ready to be brought in. And look at the reason why. Again, it was so that we would be included. It was so that together with them, we would all be made perfect on that day. Oh, do you see the privilege we have in that? We Remember the enduring prophets and it strengthens us to hang on. It comforts us that we're not the first ones to suffer. But listen, our emulating them, our enduring also serves as an example for those who come after us. When we persevere, it inspires those around us as well as the generation that follows to likewise establish their hearts on the coming of the Lord when we will all together as one church be redeemed, be fully sanctified, be actually glorified. And here is how the writer of Hebrews concludes. These are the very next verses in chapter 12. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those are the enduring prophets, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let, let, us, let us no longer establish our hearts on people and pleasures down here. No, let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So, so we look at the patient farmer. We look at the enduring prophets, but ultimately... We look to Jesus, the imminent Savior, and here He is also our consummate model of perseverance. He he perfected, He completed our faith because He never wavered in His trust. His heart was always set on eternity, and that's why He flawlessly endured to the end all the way to death on the cross. And He did that to atone for our sins, for all of our shame. Oh, the Lord's purposes are most compassionate and merciful and redemptive. But Jesus also endured the cross, church, that we might copy Him, 
that we might be like him in bearing up under our burdens so that our lives will showcase this magnificent gospel. Let's pray. God, help Grace Church to suffer well. Help them to wait patiently where their eyes may have been fixed on creating heaven on earth. Lift them from that and fix them on something far better, something far more permanent, something far more joyful. Lord, help them. And I pray that they would use their own complaining as the clue, as the, as the thread to pull on to see where they have, have landed their hopes, where they have placed their, their paradise, Lord. And I pray there would be spirit-graced conviction and there would be, be spirit-filled encouragement to fix their eyes on what is to come when you return for your bride and we reap a holy, glorious harvest of life forever with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.